The PSAs you hear on Miller and Condon and iHeartMedia Des Moines are presented in part by Nick Mick. We take care of our own. Now, here's Miller and Condon. All right, Governor Reynolds has just uh, started speaking. Let's get right to her press conference as she meets the media. New counties, so we have 82 total counties, 407 negative cases today for a total of 17,874 negative tastes test. Um, The state hygienic lab has 3,048 tests available. We have 908 Iowans that have recovered for a recovery rate of 46%. And I am sorry to um, report this morning that we have had four additional deaths, one elderly adult in Polk County, one elderly adult in Clayton County, one older adult in Alamakee County, and one older adult in Johnson County for a total of 53 deaths in Iowa. The Department of Public Health has also confirmed one additional long-term care outbreak at Wilton Retirement Community in Muscatine and this county, and this brings our total number of long-term care facility outbreaks to seven. More than 10% of Iowa's total number of positive COVID-19 cases and 49% of our deaths are related to long-term care outbreaks. All deaths in Iowa are among older or elderly individuals and those with underlying health conditions, again underscoring the importance of doing our part to protect our most vulnerable population. Today, the Department of Public Health is sending testing supplies to Wilton Retirement Center so that additional residents can be tested. We are also sending an additional 900 tests uh, to the Tyson plant in Louisa County, and this will be in addition to the 200 tests that were um, sent last week. I also want to provide a look at the RMCC data from a statewide perspective this morning. As we announced yesterday, the information is now available on a new online dashboard at coronavirus iowa.gov across all of our rmcc regions yesterday there were 171 covid19 patients hospitalized 20 were admitted in the last 24 hours 78 patients are being treated in icus and 43 are on ventilators Also, in hospitals across the state, there are 7,930 inpatient beds, 533 ICU beds, and 718 ventilators that are available for patient care. You can easily access the same information by region um, on the dashboard at coronavirus.iowa.gov. Last week, we discussed the emerging issue of newly food insecure Iowans and unintended consequences of the necessary mitigation efforts that we've implemented to slow the spread of COVID-19 in our state. And today, I want to shine a light on another important issue, and that is abuse and neglect. At a time when it's critical that Iowans stay home as much as possible to prevent being exposed to the virus and, and, uh, or exposing others, we must also recognize that home is not a safe place for all Iowans. Data from past disasters show physical and sexual abuse as well as domestic violence and substance abuse increasing increases along with the stress on families in these types of circumstances. Anecdotal information nationwide suggests that it is happening now due to COVID-19 pandemic. So for anyone living in an abusive situation, including children, staying home means that their abuse or neglect may be going unnoticed by those who might otherwise be able to help them. 
With schools out, children are separated from the teachers and caregivers who might see the signs and report them. And today, I've asked a direct Kelly Garcia, who is the director of the Department of Human Services, to join me and help raise awareness of child welfare during this time and the role that we can play, um, all play, to ensure that Iowa's children are safe and well. Director Garcia. Good morning, and thank you, Governor, for inviting me to speak today. I'm Kelly Garcia, and I have the pleasure of serving as the Director of the Department of Human Services. First, I want to thank the Department of Public Health and the Emergency Management Team for keeping us informed during this pandemic. While they focus on public health and emergency response, I'm here today to talk to you about the human side of our state's response. We are, after all, the Department of Human Services, and we know that Iowans are going to need us now more than ever. Uh, many, for the first time, may find themselves in the need of our assistance, either medical or economic assistance. And so first, I'm going to talk to you about our agency's overall response, and then I'm going to talk to you more specifically about child welfare. Before any confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the state of Iowa, DHS began analyzing our operations across the agency. Our leadership team quickly mobilized to assess our emergency response protocols and equip our team members and our community partners to be safe and to tailor these plans to this unique emergency. DHS is an agency that is truly impacted top to bottom by the COVID-19 pandemic. The pandemic has, of course, impacted the way our facilities operate. Anytime there is a disaster, mental health needs for Iowans change. We're ensuring that the needs of our current Medicaid members are met, and we know that more Iowans will seek medical, food, and economic assistance. This really has changed how we do our work, but the important thing is that we do continue to do our work. Iowans are going to increasingly rely on us in the days and months to come. I'm thankful to my entire DHS team for stepping up. More than half of you continue to be on the front lines. Some who are invisible to these efforts, like our financial services team and IT team, each one of you have demonstrated heroic efforts. And although we have shifted our operations, Team DHS stands ready. Stressors are a part of everyday life. But our inability in this emergency to access our normal social supports in the way we are used to makes things feel harder. Under the best of circumstances, parenting can be a daily challenge. While many are taking this time to add precious memories at home, we recognize that not everyone in our society can telecommute from the safety of their home while doing Pinterest crafts with their children and making precious memories. Many parents don't have those resources. They don't have jobs where they can telecommute. They may be a single parent or a head of household with working multiple jobs on the front lines. Their children may not have access to internet to participate in educational activities and now they may have reduced access to food. We know many Iowans, fam many Iowans and families live paycheck to paycheck, maybe barely, many of whom faced great challenges in previous disasters and now have the added stress of economic hardship and general uncertainty in this pandemic. 
We need to support these families and those individuals who live in the margins. And we're doing everything we can on our team to ensure access to our critical supports for Iowans who depend on us. Here are some of those highlighted efforts. For Medicaid and food assistance, we've removed barriers to ensure continuous coverage. We've suspended all premiums and copays. We've expanded telehealth. And we're also working to stand up access to COVID-19 testing for those who remain uninsured. Beyond these supports, we're also working on expanded behavioral health supports. If you know of a family or your own family needs these supports, please contact us. All available resources are listed on our website. We also need to understand how overwhelming stress can be for family, regardless of means, and how this can increase the rate of abuse and neglect. Some families, as the governor mentioned, might even be at home with their abuser. At DHS, we're paying very close attention to abuse reports, which sadly have dropped. To be clear, as the governor mentioned, we don't believe that abuse has gone away, but the reports have. Teachers, doctors, and other mandatory reporters are not seeing children and vulnerable adults like they normally would. And this is concerning. While we're monitoring this closely, we're also raising awareness. We're working closely with the Department of Education, with superintendents across the state, encouraging comfort calls to check on students. We're also putting out the call to communities, neighbors, faith-based organizations, and all Iowans. If you hear something or see something, say something. As Governor Reynolds tells us, we all have our part to play in this response. So we're calling on you. Pay attention to the sounds in your neighborhood. Reach out to the children and vulnerable adults in your life by phone or video call. Make sure they know that they're supported, loved, and listened to. If you believe someone is in imminent danger, call 911 immediately. And if you suspect someone, a child or dependent adult, is being abused or neglected, please call our abuse hotline. The number is 1-800-362-2178. We're available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. To the families we serve and to each of you, I want you to know how deeply humbled I am to serve in this role and how very seriously I take the charge to ensure every family in Iowa has access to the supports necessary during this critical time. I'm proud to support Governor Reynolds in her mission to help put Iowa's families first. Thank you for your help as we all do our part. Thank you, Kelly. And I want to thank the entire team at the Department of Human Services who are working to ensure that important services continue for Iowa families during this really challenging time. I also want to recognize the Department of Education, as Director Garcia indicated, and school districts across the state who stood up their summer meal programs early to ensure that school-aged children continue to benefit from healthy meals each day. On that note, I do want to share some good news. Um, last week, when I told 
you about the challenge that food banks across the state are having to meet the growing demand, Iowans really stepped up. The Food Bank of Iowa reported that during and after the press conference, their phones were lighting up with Iowans calling to ask what they could do from donating food to volunteering on site. Corporate partners also stepped up. We had Walmart delivered a truckload of cleaning supplies. Casey's donated 30,000 pounds of packaged lunch meat. And Ruan is helping facilitate transportation needs so that food bank, uh, the food bank can double its distribution routes. This is a time when all of us must do our part to protect our fellow Iowans, whether it's staying home or social distancing to slow the spread of the virus or recognizing when someone is in need and answering the call to help. Iowans are known and respected for doing the right thing. So thank you for being a force of good during these really difficult times. And with that, we will open it up for questions. Governor, state data shows that black and Latino Iowans are disproportionately testing positive for COVID-19. What are you doing to address that? So um, we're still looking at the trends. I'll have uh, Sarah go ahead and, and talk about that. But I think it's consistent, maybe not at the higher rate that we're seeing in some of the states across uh, the country. But we still are analyzing some of the data. Yeah, so I think that we are just um, still in the process of kind of analyzing the data. I think what we're seeing in Iowa is consistent with what we have seen, you know, across the country um, in terms of increased rates. And I think that, you know, some of the reasons and the explanations for some of those increased rates are that we know that there's a higher incidence of underlying health conditions that make these particular populations more susceptible to more serious COVID um, complications. We also know that we have larger numbers of these populations that work in businesses um, that have not been ordered to close at this time, such as food manufacturing businesses. And then we also know that there's a higher incidence of uh, more density in housing among these populations that does make isolation during illness more difficult and increases the risk of the spread within a household where we know the virus does tend to spread quickly and easily. And so some of the things that we are doing, um, we're, we're continuing to work on providing um, instructional materials in in alternate languages and trying to reach out specifically um, to some of these businesses um, where um, these individuals may um, work. Uh, and so we're continuing to try to do everything we can to provide as much information as possible uh, so that we can protect all Iowans and make sure that everybody understands where they can go for help, um, that they should seek out medical attention if they do feel ill. And if they have questions that um, we can answer, we'd encourage them to reach out to the health department. We want to provide support for everybody. Thank you. Uh, Sarah or, or Governor, on this point about food processing, um, given this question I just asked, um, obviously you were talking about um, additional testing being yeah. sent to Southeast Iowa. Um, is the state asking private employers of this nature of plants to report COVID-19 cases to the state? And if you're not, are you going to start doing that? Well, actually, they sent out some business guidance last week, and they kind of aligned it with what we ask schools to do during flu outbreaks. And that's if you see over 10% of your population that's ill, then they are to contact the Department of Public Health so we can start doing an assessment and asking some of those questions. But believe me, they know that this is an essential, especially in some of our food packaging and processing plants, this is an essential infrastructure. This is about feeding. Uh, not only Iowans, but the world. And so they know that they have a 
responsibility to take care of their employees. They, for the most part, are trying to be proactive in providing the right kind of protective gear to doing assessments on the front front end to, te to doing temperature scans. Uh, we have an additional 900 tests that will be going down to the Tyson plant today so that we, again, can get the scope of what we're looking at, start to, you know, the process to see who's been contact, who has tested positive, how we can do the contact tracing so that we can start to understand who they've been in contact, who potentially will could potentially could be um, impacted an additional positive test and so uh, we'll we'll have a better idea once we can look through the additional tests that have gone down there but the Department of Public Health also has been in constant contact with a lot of these facilities to walk through what they what they are doing what they you know if there's additional things that they need and how we can be proactive in getting in front of it I'll be calling most I've talked to several of them I'll be calling the balance of them today just to get an assessment on what they're seeing uh, where they're at with some of the protective and preventive measures that they're putting in place and just talk about how we can continue to always try to be on the front end of that uh, and, and identifying positive cases before it starts to become significant and then really problematic for keeping the facility up and running and processing food, which is so, so important. Governor, that southeast region, has the rating gone up at all because of uh, the packing plant? I haven't looked at the number today. It's eight. So, so the southeast region find five is an eight today. Uh, region six is a nine. Region two is a seven. Region one, which is the Des Moines area, is an eight. Region four is a six, and region three is a four. So, it just seems odd because there, there was that huge spike in that Columbus Junction, but that wouldn't go up higher in that region. Is there a connection yeah. there? Yeah, so case rate is one of the factors that we look at when we're doing that, um, you know, kind of assessment score. The other thing is the rate of hospitalizations. And so I think we would need to see an increase in hospitalization rate um, for that score to continue to increase in that particular region of the state. So an increase in case numbers alone isn't going to tr necessarily trigger. I mean, I think that's why we saw it go from a 7 to an 8 yesterday, because we did have an increase in case numbers. But the other thing that would factor into that would be an, an, an increase in hospitalization. And the governor, too, I think you mentioned this a little bit. LULAC sent a letter last week to Attorney General talking about can we get more, you know, languages in all the different areas, uh, Department of Health and yeah. other sites. Is that something that you're doing? Oh, absolutely. We want to be as transparent as possible, and that's been the goal from the very beginning. I know the Department of Public Health did have some COVID responses available for several weeks on their website, but we can do better. So we are working with the Department of Human Rights, and they're contracting with somebody to translate, like the press releases and some of the summary of the data that we have into several different languages. So I really appreciate LULAC reaching out, and we've had some of it in place, but as I said, you know, we can do better and apply that to some of the other information that we're putting out there, and so we'll get that tied in to the coronavirus.iowa.gov so it's in one spot and really accessible to Iowans. So hopefully um, even, you know, hopefully I forget, it's today Wednesday. Okay. <laughs> Maybe by the end of the week we can start that process. I know Director San Juan was already working on that, so we'll, we uh, intend to do better, and we should, and I really appreciate them reaching out and letting us know that uh, that was a concern. Um, Governor, oh, um, Governor, you, you've made references to a peak 
in Iowa that's expected in the next couple of weeks. Could you be as specific as possible about what data you're referencing? And then what is that actual peak for Iowa? And then when do you make a decision about what happens on May 1st, given that so many of the sectors that are being impacted by the you know, sort of um, orders to, to close are have to make plans now about whether they're yeah. going to be opening in two weeks? Yeah, well, everybody should be making plans because at some point, you know, as we base the decisions on data, we want to open up this economy. And, you know, really what we talked about today at the press conference, there are a lot of unintended consequences that are happening from the mitigation efforts that we put in place, which were essential so that we could protect vulnerable Iowans, that we could make sure that we didn't see a spike and overwhelm our hospital hospital systems. We're seeing that. I think it's looking very good right now. But to, And to make sure that we flatten the curve and that we are at a place when we can open back up. So we continue to look at the data and where it's at, but at the same time, we're looking at what things we can look at to start to dial back up and start to open up areas of the state. And it may be, you know, Northwest Iowa right now, the numbers are really low. And so we'll take a look at what it looks like up there and what some of the criteria is, and we can start to apply that throughout the state. So, you know, we want to get things up and going. We have to do it responsibly. We have to be um, cautious in how we do that because we don't want to just flip the light switch and then, you know, have another spike happen in a week. That's not going to be beneficial for anybody. We don't want to open things up only to say in a week we got to shut it back down. And so we have to be um, strategic and thoughtful and responsible in how we do that. And as I have done with everything, or there might be areas that I need to just, you know, really take a look at in some of our hot spots and see if there's additional things we need to do there too. Maybe it's an additional testing, you know. So we're, we're, we're looking at all of that all as we move through this. Um, I can have Sarah talk about the peak that some of the modeling, you know, they look at to project that. But again, I'm sure she'll say it is modeling that they're looking at. And uh, so it's only as good as the assumptions that are going in. Sarah? Right. And, then, and Sarah, to a question, a follow-up to that, what role does testing play in making the decision to open up sectors of the state if there is a shortage of testing? Sure. So, yeah. So you're highlighting some of the challenges that we've had. I think what we're basing our estimates on in terms of when are we going to see a peak in Iowa is really based on the experience in other states. Um, so we're understanding, you know, from the time that they started to see case onsets and from the time that they started to put mitigation efforts in place, what did their, you know, what did their peak look like? And it looks like that was about four to six weeks from the time that they really started having um, aggressive efforts. And so that has been kind of the information that we've been using to estimate uh, middle to the end of April. I think we're starting to see our case, our positive case numbers start to level off. Now that will change as we do targeted testing. So as Governor Reynolds mentioned, we're going to do some increased testing in Columbus Junction um, related to that plant. And we're going to get some additional testing supplies there. So, you know, that could increase our case counts. Um, and, but I th so I think as, you know, we do more testing, we might find more cases. But those might be cases that we wouldn't otherwise find if they are employees that are experiencing mild illness and they hadn't gone to their doctor to seek testing and, and that sort of thing. So when we talk about where do, where did we come up with the information to identify when our peak was going to happen, that was really based on experience that we've seen, you know, from other states. I think we've seen our case counts kind of start to level off as we do some more of this surveillance type testing, which is what is going to happen um, in Columbus Junction, where we're going to surveillance test and do testing on people that might not be showing symptoms, might not otherwise be ill. We might see our case counts come up. Um, but the reason that we haven't done widespread surveillance testing in our state to date is because 
this. We just haven't had the testing supplies available to do that. So hopefully that answers the question. If you don't have widespread testing, isn't it a gamble to open up parts of the state? Well, I'll let Governor Reynolds address that. Well, it's a piece of the information, and we're hoping we can continue to do more and more testing. So um, we'll we'll be anxious to update Iowans on on that aspect. Uh, hopefully, maybe tomorrow. But it, it is important, and uh, it is part of the equation. But again, you know, this it doesn't reflect everything that's happening. If you look at the map, the information that the Department of Public Health is now providing on the website, you can hover over the different counties, and you can see that testing is happening in every county across the state and it shows the number of negatives and number of positives so it's not like you know half the state up in northwest Iowa they're not even being tested that's not the case there's actually testing going on across the state but every governor you talk to the more testing that we're able to do that helps especially when you can do some of the surveillance testing that um, Sarah talked about to get a better sense of what's happening because they you know a lot of people are asymptomatic and so to get a better understanding of that and to do the contact tracing so we can see who they have potentially been around and exposed and what that looks like to give them a heads up to be uh, looking for some of the symptoms since they have come in contact with somebody that tested positive all goes a really long way to allow us to really target our approach and where we need to really concentrate our efforts on like our long-term care facilities because we know that those are such vulnerable Iowans in these facilities a packing plant because it's close proximity so it really allows us I think to target our responses in a better manner all right Dave go ahead morning governor earlier this week i think it was monday you talked about that you were going to be meeting with your economic recovery task force can you tell us who is on that group and can you talk about maybe some of the specific metrics you all will look at to decide how to reopen whether it's in stages geographically what sectors of the private world how, how you're going to decide on this yeah dave so that's why we're creating an economic recovery task force because we're going to put we're going to start with phase one and we'll have the different agencies around the table to start to talk about what some of those questions are what should we be looking at what are some of the metrics we should applying uh what does it look like to stabilize what does it look like to recover and then what does it look like to start to grow the economy so it's different phases that we'll be working through so we'll start initially with a lot of the um, di directors and department heads that have been really involved in the COVID response. Um, and then we'll start to kind of frame up the timeline, what we're looking at, um, and then what some of those subgroups may look like. Agriculture is really hurting right now, and that's a significant part of our economy. So that's a sector that we need to look at. The the restaurant and, and hospitality industry, how do, we you know, how do we recover from that? So the phase... Um, too, we'll be bringing in business and industry and outsiders to start to sit down and, and get their input on what it looks like to start to really stabilize, recover, and then grow uh, the economy in Iowa. So I, I wasn't being flippant. We just are at the very beginning stages. We'll get the directors together tomorrow, start to walk through some of that. We can get a list of the agencies that will be involved in that. But phase two, I think, is what you're probably going to be more interested in. That's when we bring the private sector into the discussion and start to really do a deep dive on what it looks like to start to open things back up all right there's uh, governor reynolds uh, press conference at least a good portion of it we will take a time out we'll come back uh, we're going to talk uh some des moines buccaneers hockey pursuant to the upcoming draft we'll do that with the head coach of the bucks peter menino menino we'll get it right trent but we, yes. what we're going to do right now is uh kxno and iheart want to help you with your bills text the keyword 
Board to 200-200 right now. It's your chance to win $1,000. That would cure boredom. The keyword is board to 200-200. You'll get a confirmation text and info. Standard data and message rates apply in this nationwide contest. Michelle Book, the CEO of Food Bank Iowa, coming up in about oh, 20 minutes or thereabouts as well as we take you towards noon on Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, 106. Today. Ken Miller, Trent Condon, Miller and Condon on 1460 KXNO. And now on 106.3 FM. Hi, welcome back. Miller and Condon, Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, 106.3 FM. We take you up until noon. Still to come, Michelle Book. CEO of the Food Bank of Iowa. We'll get in, her in here for a little bit. I'll find out what's going on at the Food Bank and what they still need. But right now, the uh, Des Moines Buccaneers head coach, I, I, I could talk to Peter Menino about his NHL career. It is so similar in a lot of ways, Trent Condon. Yes. To the president of the Des Moines Buccaneers, a guy that we like a lot, Nate uh-huh. Toit. Uh-huh. Nate got to the show for a week. Yes. He uh, had struck out, a, struck out a batter. I still got the ball. Peter Menino played more than... You know, he played in the NHL. He, had, he won a game for the New York Islanders. He beat the Chicago Blackhawks and finished with my Jets. Wow. How about that? Coach, uh, Trent Conn is my partner. I'm Ken Miller. Good to talk to you. How are you, Coach? I'm doing well. A little stir-crazy, like I'm sure a lot of us, but just trying to stay safe and, uh, you know, uh, spend, spend, spend family time as well as doing doing work on the phone yeah i bet so so tell us how disappointing obviously for the the coaching staff but for the kids who you know put in such a, such hard work throughout the season uh and to have their season end the way that it did what was it like and i don't know if you were around the team uh when the uh, league decided to uh you know fold the season due to the covid19 but what was that like that had to be incredibly difficult yeah it was very uh it was weird. I mean, it was a, a, an uncomfortable situation because we didn't, no one's ever really seen anything like this before, right? And we saw all of a sudden, the, it was kind of the NBA uh, news that really yeah. hit home because we were we were sitting there trying to figure out what was going to happen for the week. We were prepping for Cedar Rapids. Um, and then all of a sudden that Thursday, the call started to come in with uh, conferences with the owners, management, and it just happened so quickly that you look back on you're like wow like you know wish we had more of a chance to uh one-on-one end with the guys and it was extremely um like awkward because you didn't you had this uh this emptiness and then it shifted quickly as things started to come to light from being suspended to canceling to be uh, frustrated disappointed because our guys poured in all year and we had a consistency that was building into a consistent situation to push for playoffs and go after mm-hmm. the championship. And it was, it was taken away. So it, it was a mixed bag of emotions that were happening quickly. And, um, you know, here, here we are today kind of putting the pieces together. Pete, you uh, got your way back to Michigan, your stomping grounds, the players that, you know, we're not talking about kids that are kids that are from Des Moines. These are people from across the country, across the world that are playing in your organization. Any stories, anything that came out, try, guys trying to get back home, hop in the car and make their way back, whatever it is, because it had to be trying times. We're talking about you know, kids in their teenage years trying to find their way back home and try to get some normalcy. Yeah, absolutely. We do have uh, no Ellis 
five minutes down the road. Right, uh, right. So that was, yeah, yeah Noah, Noah was, uh, you know, the one going, well, I'm just going to head home here and uh, have normalcy <laughs> in that way. But, uh, you know, yeah, it was, like I said, that Thursday when everything started to trickle down and the season uh, was suspended, then it was like, are the what do we do with the players? Like, are they going to go home? And our, our conversation as a group was we're in best interest of what the families want for the players, obviously, to be safe and get back. And within, uh, and, uh, you know, five minutes of that conversation of the suspension of the season, I, I quickly uh, got on the calls with all the players. Um, the general manager talked to all the parents. And they all they all dispersed to go home. That was a decision to the families. Uh, we started to take information, and it was across the board. I mean, we had Vincent Salice, who houses with Ellis. His parents drove from Michigan all the way to Des Moines. They picked him up and drove him back mm. uh, to Simon Mack, one of our Canadian uh, defensemen that was hurt all season was was uh, rehabbing at the end. They got they got stopped at the border. You know, and they're like, ah, I'd be careful if you're going to come over because we're going to shut these down. Wow. So, you know, then he had to make travel plans. If it was a flight or whatever it might be, um, all the way to Yaroslav Alexiev. He had to, he had to um, fly to New York and then fly to Moscow and be in quarantine for 14 mm. You know, yeah. So we, everything was very smooth. Um, you know, we were very fortunate, and first and foremost, that our players, um, the parents know that, that everybody got back, everybody was safe. Uh, from, you know, like I said, from Russia all the way to uh, Michigan or wherever it might be. Um, and we're very fortunate for that. So no no crazy stories, just other stuff and logistics on getting them back. That was it. Uh, very interesting. Well, Coach, I want to get into the uh, to the draft, uh, and uh, we don't know when it's going to be, but we do know that there's going to be some Buccaneers here, their names called uh, at some point in the draft. Just just real quick on your career, uh, you 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 won a game uh, with the New York Islanders. You were the uh, the winning goalie over the uh, the Blackhawks in 2009. Look, when a skater go- scores his fourth goal, the the puck stays with him forever, right? It's uh, either he keeps it or his parents or somebody close to him has it. But when you're a goaltender. And you win a game. I mean, what souvenir do you have from your from your win in the NHL? Uh, other than obviously, you know, the the commitment of my family and everybody, just just that feeling. Uh, I was fortunate because it was in Chicago. My parents uh, were at the game, and then um, my girlfriend, that is my wife today, she was there. Um, so I, I was really, I got super lucky in the sense that they were there to really uh, be be a part of the moment, you know, mm-hmm. firsthand there. Uh, had family watching, uh, but yeah, after the game, you know, the the organization to the New York Islanders sent me a really nice framed uh, two shy uh, two sided sheet. I got the rosters. It had a puck in there. It kind of had an, a really nice setup from there. I was able to get my jersey. Nice. Um, and then the NA, the NHL sends you a uh, um, kind of a puck and a score sheet as well, which was my my first action against Boston, which was not a great showing by any means, <laughs> but they. They they were they do give you some nice mementos there to remember it, but none of that stuff really. Uh, um, it's great to have you know yeah. the materialistic stuff, but it, it was the feeling, and I, I mean I can't tell you how how much it meant that they were at the game. Oh, sure. Those are the people that got me there, you know. I yep. and I, I lost my dad this year, but to know that he was with me at that game, I mean, what he did now that I know as a coach and as a parent of a two year old and a four year old, I'm like. How did they do that? Mm. You know, this is a sacrifice financially and yeah. time-wise. So um, those are the pieces I really take away is uh, having coaches text me that, ha- you know, 
uh, poured into me along the way and stuff like that that you just really share the experience with. Uh, cool story. Cool story. Thanks for sharing it with us. Well, there's going to be some, you know, guys on your roster that in all likelihood are, in all likelihood are going to have that opportunity. Coach, yeah. I, I say it all the time. I, I don't think people realize just the, the, the caliber of play in the United States Hockey League. You know, the, it's a feeder system for the colleges, but there'll be so many kids that hear their name called uh, at the draft this year. And there's a couple of uh, Buccaneers, you know, more than a couple. Uh, there's a handful of Buccaneers that are going to be a part of that. So uh, we don't know when the draft is, but what are the draft eligible kids able to do? I, I don't know if there's going to be a combine. I don't know how many of them would have gotten invited to the combine, but what do they do in preparation for that whenever that is? Yeah, I mean, at this point right now, we had five ranked on uh, the central scouting. They do uh, kind of a final ranking system. They do it throughout the season. Uh, we had Noah Alice, Alex Leferrier, Timmy Lovell, Christoph Papp, Cameron Rowe, and Lucas Mercury, one of our affiliates. Uh, those guys were on that final ranking system. Um, that that ranking system necessarily, it's, it's a credit to the players, right, to be kind of um, pulling themselves out of a major group in the entire world. And we're really, really fortunate from an organizational standpoint to have those guys to stick out. But there are other guys on the roster, you know, uh, other guys that could potentially go in the draft that weren't on this ranking system. Um, but what, what all of them, what they can do at this point is really, um, they'll, they're still getting phone calls from NHL teams. Uh, teams will ask me for the numbers, you know, management, uh, other coaches, and they're just calling and getting to know them a little more, doing their process which could be different questions, different approaches, gaining information from, you know, what are their parents, like how tall are they, you know, things like that that they mm. do different organizations do. So they just have to be readily available to answer that stuff because, like you said, the combine isn't there anymore. Uh, Alex Leferrier was, he was uh, invited to go there. Uh, Cameron Rowe was there last year. You know, so you don't have the opportunity to physically uh, showcase your talents or do anything like that now it's, because of this unfortunate uh, ending, is you just hope what you did was good enough. Mm-hmm. And if you speak to these teams, you can give them some piece of information or confidence that you're the guy uh, that they want at the end of the day in that, in that particular pick. Coach, listen, uh, it was good getting to know you a little bit here and getting to know your team a little bit. We should have done it during the year. We have toyed in here a couple of times, but uh, we will... Um be on your caller ID uh, if, when, when the seasons or when hockey resumes at some point next year is uh, pretty hardcore in this chair here, Coach. Uh, good to talk to you. Uh, thanks for coming on and sharing, A, your story and the story of some of these kids who are going to have a, a dream fulfilled when they hear their name uh, come draft weekend again, whenever that is. Thank you, Coach. Appreciate you coming on. Appreciate your time, guys. Thanks a lot. Take care. Peter Menino, head coach of the uh, Des Moines Buccaneers. First ever Winnipeg Jet you've had on the radio? Yeah, how about that? Yeah, now he played twenty minutes. He, I think, I'm sure he came in. and I, I don't remember. You, you it don't was re- the first year that they were back, 2011. Okay. And they were awful, but who cares? Yeah, yeah, they, <laughs> they were, were back, back. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and they're always awful. <laughs> um, but yeah, he played. Um, he played twenty minutes. I'm sure. I don't know. Maybe the starter got hurt or got pulled, pulled or whatever. Yeah. Probably, probably got pulled. <laughs> we will uh, take a time out. Michelle Book, the uh, CEO. That's that's going to do for the sports portion of the program. But we hope you stick around. Mm-hmm. Michelle Book, the CEO of the Food Bank of Iowa, joins the program next. Miller and Condon till uh, well towards noon on uh, fourteen sixty KXNO one hundred four podcasts.
All right, welcome back, Miller and Condon, Des Moines Sports Station, 1460 KXNO, 106.3 FM. As we, uh, final segment here of the program, we promised this segment, and for as long as they need the segment, uh, here on our program till we get through this, Michelle Book, the CEO of the Food Bank of Iowa, is going to join us. Today is no different. Uh, Michelle Trenton, Ken, good to have you back on. How are things at the Food Bank of Iowa? Booming. Good. Business is booming. We are we are busy here. All hands on deck. Yep. Employees are are busy working every day, reaching out to our agency partners and our school partners. And we're still hosting thirty, forty volunteers a day. Wow, great! Uh, getting food boxes put together that we can distribute via mobile pantry. So we're busy. That's uh, that's good news. And the volunteers coming out like that is 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 really terrific. You know what has struck me through this, Michelle, is, and I guess I didn't realize uh, until until this uh, until these circumstances, just how much corporate Des Moines corporate. Polk County, Central Iowa, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we, we've had a lot of people on, uh, Annie Baldwin being one of them, who I know you know. Uh, just yeah. how, how, how Central Iowa and the community has come to support and, and really to do their part to help what you guys are doing at Food Bank of Iowa. Uh, a lot of corporate support. Well, I am grateful for the corporate partnerships that we've worked really hard to build over the last several years. And so many of them called me. I didn't That's call great. them, but I got a phone call out of blue saying, hey, we want to help you. What do you need? And it's it's been absolutely amazing. Um, and I can't even begin to list all of them. Yeah, that, that's so great to hear, and we continue to hear that and the the outpouring of support that we get across Central Iowa. It is incredible, certainly, to see. Michelle, as uh, we look to find out what we can do to help, for the people that are out there that can either lend their time, and we've talked about that in the past, but other areas, if you still are not real confident in going out, some of the other measures that people can make to help out the Food Bank of Iowa. Well, thank you. Uh, demand is continuing to rise as people are burning through their tax refunds and their final paychecks. Mm-hmm. So we do not see an end in sight um, in, in the near future at all. Uh, if you are in need of help, please reach out to get help. Uh, going to our website, foodbankiowa.org, you can put your zip code in and find the nearest distribution site to your home. Um, if you have, uh, if, you're, if you're still earning uh, a living wage and have a little extra, a dollar donated to the Food Bank of Iowa converts to four meals for folks in need. And if you have an hour, uh, come to our website and sign up to volunteer. If you'd rather volunteer from home, we are collecting T-shirts that we are making into food distribution bags. Uh, the boxes that we were using to distribute food through mobile pantries cost us over a dollar a piece. Mm. We're now getting T-shirts donated, and they're very easily converted into a bag, and we're using those T-shirts as food distribution bags. So if you'd like to help with that effort, call our office at 515 564 0330 and we'll get some t-shirts and pattern out to you so you can work on that from home that's great information of course schools are still shut down uh and schools feed so many kids the backpack program is still a need i'm assuming uh, what uh, what's the food bank of iowa what's the situation pursuant to the uh, the kids in schools uh, that are so dependent on those meals well, for many of our school partners, they are distributing backpacks 
through the end of the school year. It's good for the teacher uh, to stay in touch with their students and also good for the students to know that schools still care. And many of our school pantries are still open across our geography. So uh, the kids still need the help. Uh, last year, um, up this current school year, on average, we were sending 18,000 pounds of food each month through the Des Moines Public School school pantries. So we hope those are up and running again soon. You, uh, I, I saw something about the SNAP hotline, and I know we, this is something we've also talked about a little bit before, Michelle, but tell us a little bit about that, and I'm going to have to assume that you guys are just getting constant phone calls, and it's a, even more of a process for you to get to all the people calling into that hotline. Well, it, it is, and I, I beg for people to have some patience with us. Uh, we are taking um, calls from DHS, Department of um, Human Services, at our hotline for people to sign up, helping people to sign up and enroll for uh, food assistance, SNAP, uh, what used to be called food stamps. So please, I ask for your patience. Uh, the number to call is 855-944-FOOD. 855-944-3663. Uh, but please be patient. The calls are overwhelming our telephone system, um, and we're doing the very best we can right now. Uh, we're going to run out of show in about 90 seconds here, Michelle. So why don't, uh, at risk of us leaving something out, your biggest needs, whatever you want to tell our audience here uh, before we run out of time. Again, if you can help, come to our website, foodbankiowa.org, or if you need help, come to our website. Also, uh, check out Project Zume. Uh, they're running distributions through church parking lots, and they are delivering to your home. If you shut in or you're sick, a Project Zume partner will get food to your house. So, again, all that's on our website, and we just appreciate so much everybody's help in this community. It's been amazing. And I guess you probably need volunteers to help with the delivery at the Project Zume. Uh, the churches are coordinating gotcha. all of that. We have amazing church partners. Terrific. Uh, Michelle, we're here for you in the weeks to come. If, uh, if you need time, have Dylan reach out. We will find a segment for you as we get through this foodbankofiowa.org, uh, food bank, uh, foodbankiowa.org, foodbankiowa.org. Michelle, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Look forward to speaking to you next week. You we will well. be here with us. Take care. Good to talk to you. You the same. Uh, that's Michelle Book, the CEO of Food Bank Iowa, foodbankiowa.org. And uh, she'll be with us next week. Looking forward Absolutely. to that and uh, ways to help out. Certainly there are plenty of them out there that you can do from the volunteering to just uh, donating time, money, whatever it may be. Or, well, food. T-shirts. T-shirts, yes. I love, I love know that, that? No. That, that's really neat. Yes. Uh, tomorrow we're going to do Restaurant Radio. Mm -hmm. NCMIC makes that possible. I think we have one slot left, but we're already taking, we're already filling Tuesday and uh, Thursday of next week. If you own a restaurant, work at a restaurant, Heck, like to go to a restaurant, and when we get through this, want that restaurant to be open, we'd love to have them on uh, our uh, restaurant radio segment. We do it twice weekly, Tuesdays and Thursdays from 1020 until 11 o'clock. It's free of charge. There's no catch. You come on, you give us, essentially, it's what, two or three minute, four minute mm -hmm. infomercial about your restaurant. We've got, I think, 10 of them lined up for tomorrow, uh, but you can be a part of it. Email me, KenMillerShow at gmail.com, KenMillerShow at gmail.com, or Trent is on Facebook. 
Facebook, uh, Trent Condon on Facebook, and we will line you up for next week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then on Friday, we recap the week, so we give you another segment, another shout-out about your restaurants. Yes, always a lot of fun and getting to know some of the restaurants that don't know a whole lot about. Drove past maybe yes. and didn't know what they were about. And that's a, that's a good point, Trent. We're finding out a lot about that. Uh, we had to, uh, Cappy had to cancel today, had to postpone today. Uh, so Cappy will, will be with us tomorrow as the snow, I guess, in Chicago made the morning commute. What it was of a commute, um, just untenable you couldn't do it cap couldn't he couldn't get downtown so he will join us tomorrow uh and uh we'll catch up on well the last dance and dot 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 the bulls are making some moves which is great anyways we'll do that tomorrow restaurant radio as well ken miller show at gmail.com if you want to be a part of it murph and andy coming your way at two the fanatics will slide on in here at four o'clock and then tomorrow morning at 6 a.m the morning rush will kick off another day of local programming for trent condon i'm ken miller thanks for being with us we're 10 to noon on des moines sports station 1460 kxno 106.3